Alright, so we're jumping back into the introduction to Baptist ecclesiology. Uh, now, as many of you should be aware by now, this is not a sermon, this is a lecture. Uh, I was actually thinking that this would be the last lecture of this series, but uh, after going through the content, I just realised there was going to have to be another one. Otherwise, it was going to be squeezing and pushing too much in, which I feel would have just covered the topic from a very superficial uh, area, which wouldn't be that helpful. I might as well not talk uh, than actually cover a very sketch, uh, brief sketch. But uh, Ray's passing out some notes. Uh, by all means, there's, there's 15, so if you can share, then that might be good. If you can't, then that's fair enough. Alrighty. So before uh, before I jump into it, despite it being a lecture, it's always good to be guided uh, by the Lord, guided by and prompted by the Spirit. So why don't we commit this time again uh, to Him, as and then we'll jump into it into tonight's lecture. Dear Blessed Father, again we thank you for the fact that we can pray to you. We thank you for the fact that you are that everlasting, ever the everlasting God. Father, as we, as we dive into this tonight, help us to be focused. We again pray against distractions, against tiredness, just to be focused on this. Why? Because we recognize that you're important. We recognize indeed that you have given us so much, so much about yourself. You have revealed so much about yourself in your word. And so, Father, as we seek to unpack just a small snippet of that tonight, Help us to keep our ears open and just to be focused. In his most blessed name, amen. All right, as per usual, I normally give a recap of the previous week just to help us remember what actually got covered because I don't know about you, but I so easily forget what I've done the day before, let alone what's happened several weeks ago. Uh, So from a recap perspective, we covered on the governance of the church, and so we touched on elders, deacons, and the, the, the actual mix, and, and covered some of the tension between the congregation and eldership, uh, particularly that the congregation, well, actually, I'll just read the recap. Um, so let's dive into that. As the congregation gathered, it was understood that the way that such gatherings were structured, governed, and ran were of absolute importance. The assembly was not to be chaotic, and likewise all who assembled were not meant to do what they saw fit in their own eyes, but rather there was to be structure in how worship was conducted and how the church was ordered. Like others from the Puritan, uh, Puritan tradition, particular Baptists understood that scripture provided the prescriptive framework. Now, most of you hopefully know the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. Right? Descriptive, uh, descriptive just describes, prescriptive saying this is what we ought to do. But most notably, and varying with the Presbyterians, they believe that the highest court of authority, particularly regarding the induction of members, the appointment of officers, and the matter of discipline, was the spirit-empowered body of believers themselves. However, this was not to deny the very real authoritative role of the ordinary church officers, who were generally appointed from within the congregation. Recognized for meeting the scriptural qualifications, individuals were set aside to serve as elders and deacons. 
elders were to lead, preach, and teach the congregation, being an example in the ways of Christ. And they were recognized as having been gifted by Christ in order to undertake the duties required. As such, they were listened to and willingly obeyed as they sought to shepherd and nurture the souls of those whom had been entrusted to them. There was generally understood that for a spiritually thriving congregation, there ought to be both a plurality of elders with a parity of authority between them, ensuring not only spiritual refinement within the eldership, but coverage across the body, preventing any one individual becoming either conceited, overwhelmed, or impotent. However, the congregation was to humbly submit to their authority and encourage the elders, recognizing the heavy spiritual burden of duty placed upon them. While less evident within scripture, deacons would serve in a manner that tended to be uh, tended to the physical necessities of the congregation, particularly to the poor and widows, while also ensuring that the elders, those who are now were entrusted to prayer and to the ministry of the word, were able to be devoted to such duties. Through the performance of the respective roles, the congregation of visible saints, and hopefully that's something that you've all come to now recognize what what a church is from a Baptist understanding is a gathering of visible saints, those who believe, were led and governed in a way that was understood as scripturally mandated in which it could be spiritually nourished through the structure thus prescribed. So again, it is God himself who prescribes the manner and method in how we, get, uh, how we meet and also how we are governed as a church. Now, while such an understanding would align with the consensus of Baptist thought uh, on this matter, a question ought to be raised this far on our study of Baptist ecclesiology. Notably, if what we've covered over the previous weeks is what Baptist churches hold, then what about those from other Protestant traditions? How should we interpret the differences between Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians and Anglicans? After all, we had an Anglican preach from our pulpit this morning. At what point and upon which doctrines ought we divide or part ways with others? These are valid questions and ones which we must reflect upon. Now, this is not to say that we cannot have any fellowship with those who differ, but rather upon which differences truly matter when it comes to things such as forming believing communities or churches with, uh, with others, if indeed fellowship as a whole is even an option. After all, such questions, uh, questions such as whether the church is an intentional mixed body of believers and unbelievers, the inclusion of infants within the membership, whether the church is national, comprising of many appendages, or whether it is local and autonomous and comprising of each separately, is the church to be governed or ruled by ministers or by the congregation as its ultimate authority after Christ? Now, these are all varying positions within the Presbyterian traditions that we have covered in the previous weeks, whereby divergence within a single church could lead to issues and considerable friction within. Of course, if we're in a church and some people believe that infants should be members of the church and some don't believe infants should be members of the church, that will eventually lead to issues within the church. If some people in the church want to go, no, we are fully ruled by elders, and the congregation has no say whatsoever, and then in the same church we have people going, no, the congregation dictates each and every thing, you're going to have 
issues within the church. And this is why the doctrine of the church is significantly important. But do they all constitute sufficient reason to avoid any and all fellowship with those who hold these positions? Just because we disagree with those other people who may hold to these positions, does that mean that ergo facto we just have nothing to do with them? Now, particular, particular Baptists have traditionally denied that such differences invalidated wider fellowship with those who held such positions. Again, if many of you can remember from the earlier lectures, from whence did particular Baptists come from? From Congregationalists, who were Peter Baptist. Right? They believed in the baptizing of in, and church membership of infants. But they recognized that having descended from Congregationalism, they held to an understanding of Catholicity. Catholicity, that generally while there was a theological divergence with those who held to these positions and that these were still important matters, the doctrine of the church is still important. Even if we disagree with other churches as to how a church is comprised or constituted, it still matters. But that these other churches still held to the fundamentals of the faith and were thus part of the church universal. So again, made up of the church universal, the invisible church comprised of all members, past, present, and future. Or to restate it slightly differently, and to quote Benjamin Keach, who I hope that many of you have started to remember that name, because it's always good to know our history, and Benjamin Keach is a name worth knowing. But to quote Benjamin Keach, who himself uh, citing Hercules Collins, those churches who make Christ's merits the foundations of their salvation and his doctrine the foundation of their church's constitution are true churches, and which I would give a hearty amen to. This is to say for our... Uh, for, uh, for our there's a typo there, sorry. Uh, that, oh, no, that, that's not a typo. That is to say for our Congregationalist, Presbyterian, Anglican brethren... They are to be considered as attending true churches if they hold to the supremacy of God's word and all it teaches regarding the excellencies of Christ. You see, particular Baptists, they recognize, like most who stemmed from the Reformed tradition, that no church could claim, as did the Roman Catholic Church, to be the true church. But a church could claim to be our true Church. Hopefully you note the distinction there. That's an important one. And this was based on certain marks which evidenced that a church was uh, that evidence that a church was genuinely adhering to, uh, to Christ in the fundamentals, even if they differed in certain outworkings or applications. While Reformed theologians have debated as to how many marks there are, there have been generally a consensus that there is no less than one and no more than three. Personally, I, I lean to the understanding that there are three marks of a true church when it comes to identifying them, and that is, number one, the proclamation of the word of God. Secondly, the administration of the ordinances. And third and lastly, church discipline. Now, before I give my reasons as to why I hold to three marks, I must concede to the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. Who, uh, whose point when he says that the three marks are more difference in name than in substance. 
as Bavink continues, all ministry in the church is a ministry of the word. And we have touched upon that in previous weeks. God gives his word to the church and the church accepts, preserves, administers and teaches it. It confesses it before God, before one another and before the world in word and deed. This is absolutely true, and as has been mentioned in previous weeks, a true church, be it a Baptist church or otherwise, is one that recognises the absolute centrality of the Word of God. As we come together to not only hear it, but we come together to apply it. Again, as James says in the book of James, not, do not only be hearers, be doers also. I once recalled a man I went to church with over a decade ago who argued that the so-called conservative fundamentalists held to an idolatry of the Bible. Again, he saw us lifting the Bible's importance as too much. But yet, how can one know anything about God, about Christ, and about our duty apart from the Word? We go from its objective truths to our own idol, Speculation and wanton desires otherwise. However, I agree with Gahadis Voss. Uh, Gahadis Voss is one of my f- uh, favourite uh, theologians, probably in my top ten. But I agree with uh, Gahadis Voss's understanding that if the pure proclamation of God's word is more than a semblance and sham, one will inevitably also be serious about the administration of these sacraments formulated according to the institution of that word. And so with discipline. Submission to the word is thus, in a deeper sense, the sole mark. But of itself, the one, this one mark divides into three when one recalls that each visible church must be the gathering and the mother of believers at the same time. And now consequently, we must recognize that for a church to be a true church, there must be an absolute centrality of God's word and its primary outworking as to our salvation. R.C. Sproul, to put it succinctly, he puts it this way, if a church denies any essential point of the gospel, such as the deity of Christ, the atonement, or the justification, uh, justification by faith alone, it is no longer a church. Furthermore, into Voss's point above, if a church is committed to the word of God, it will be committed to its outworking. You can't say, I believe in this, this is my highest point of authority, and not seek to apply it. To Voss's earlier comment, that would be a sham. It would be, it would be false to claim that it's center of our lives when we are not seeking to earnestly and accurately apply it. Yes, um, so committed to the word of God, it will be committed to its outworking, and particularly to the ongoing duty and activity that the church has been called to perform together. Then it will be also committed to the administration of the ordinances, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are only two ordinances. Of course, in certain Baptist traditions, particularly in the United States, because we all know some interesting things come out of the United States, no offence, Todd, um, is the ordinance of foot washing. They see feet, uh, foot washing as being a particular ordinance of the church, but particular Baptist tradition, and most Baptists have understood there only to be two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. 
whereby Christ states in the Great Commission, this is why they ordinances, whereby Christ states in the Great Commission, go there and make disciples of all nations doing what? Baptizing them. And likewise in Luke 22, 19, after taking bread and breaking it, saying what? Do this in remembrance of me. These two activities were recognized as having been designed by Christ for the edification of God's people. And as such, there is a duty of a sort, really, of any person who calls themselves a follower of Christ to maintain the regular administration of them, a point we will go further into momentarily. But lastly, the mark of church discipline, if a church is serious about the application of God's word, and if the body is committed to mutual spiritual nourishment of its members, then this is a mark, that is church discipline, is a mark that cannot be neglected. As Voss rightly notes, church discipline is a calling of the church to manifest itself as a true church, both in walk and in confession. Now, the walk always remains imperfect on account of the peace of the world that is still present in believers. But there must be a limit. To leave all sins unpunished and unjudged in its midst would involve for the church a failure of a principal part of its calling. Consequently, though, uh, through, uh, consequently, through discipline, it is determined to what extent holiness of life is demanded of the church. Now, these are the three marks by which we should not only hold our own church, but any church against to see if they are indeed a true church, as has been revealed in Scripture. A church that is committed to God, to Christ, as revealed in his word, holding to the absolute fundamentals of our faith as to salvation, but also a church that is committed to its application and its outworking, putting into practice those activities that we have been entrusted with, ensuring that any sinful deviation from word or application is consequently or subsequently dealt with for the glory of God and edification of the saints. However, this evening we'll be focusing chiefly on the second mark, that of the administration of the ordinances, and particularly only baptism, being that much of the previous weeks have been uh, centred upon the supremacy and primacy of God's word. Obviously, a lot of what I've covered has been rooted and grounded in God's word, because that is supreme, so that's why I won't go into it. But being that it is upon this mark particularly on the ordinances and that of baptism specifically, upon which is the most variance and differentiation between Baptist and our Peter Baptistic brethren. Uh, hopefully you get the idea of Peter Baptistic, Peter, child, or infant, and Baptist are those who baptize infants. Now, the, uh, firstly, we turn to the first ordinance, that of baptism. We recognize that it is perhaps here which lays the largest divergence amongst ourselves and our infant baptizing brethren, much of which derives from what we have covered in previous weeks concerning a different understandings of, of the relationship between the old and new covenants, particularly with the Peter Baptist understanding that the new covenant is administered similarly to that of the old, seeing both as being administrations of the covenant of grace. I won't go further into that because that's a whole different rabbit trail itself in the covenant theology. 
But as such, they see the household treatment and inclusion of infants as being a pattern that is established in the old and is to be imported into the new. Now, particular Baptists, they rightly reject this understanding, seeing that the new covenant was indeed new, not merely an administ- a new administration of the old, whereby they allo- allowed, they allowed a, particular, a particular Baptist allowed the new covenant, the new testament, to establish its own framework, which is important, rather than holding the new covenant or the new testament under the framework of the old. including those who are said to be participants of the covenant, and it ought to be noted on this point that it is not on the matter of baptism. A lot of people go, what's the difference between Presbyterians and Baptists? Oh, it's because Presbyterians baptise infants and Baptists baptise believers. But that's only an outworking of the difference, not the difference in of itself. not on a matter of baptism itself upon which we ultimately differ with our pedo-baptistic brethren, but as much as our recognition of the discontinuity of scripture between testaments, as well as the interplay of covenants. The difference of baptism is merely the outworking of this. Now, particular Baptists began to comprehend this as they emerged from congregationalism in the early to mid-17th century, as they read through the history of the church on this subject, as well as, of course, scripture. So when the particular Baptists, when they were dealing with this, uh, this matter, they had their eyes in two different locations, scripture and the history of the church. Those were both the guiding lines for the particular Baptists as they wrestled with their position on baptism. And they came to the consensus that the position of baptism of infants was scripturally untenable and historically unwarranted. Yet for this position, particular Baptists were to be persecuted, somewhat significantly within much of the 17th century, with the brief brief exception of the Cromwellian Protectorate, which briefly lasted between 1653 to 1659. So they had six years of peace and most of the other period there was, a, uh, to varying degrees, a, a decent level of persecution until the Toleration Act in 1689, which is, for those who are, those who are eagle-eyed here you'd be, or hawk-eyed here, you'd note that 1689 is the year associated with the London Baptist Confession. And the reason why it's called 1689, despite being written in 1677, was that particular Baptists were like, hey, we can worship now, this is great, now we can produce what we actually hold and actually put our names to it. Whereas beforehand, in 1677, that confession roamed around, but without names attached to it. So under the Toleration Act in 1689, Baptists, along with other nonconformists, were able to have freedom of worship. However, to start with, particular Baptists understood that baptism was an activity that was undertaken by a believer who, being a relatively new Christian, was fully immersed into water as an act that recognised that they had been spiritually washed and made new. That is to say, regenerated. That is, an individual was regenerated first, brought to faith by the gracious movement of the Spirit, and then, recognising this new spiritual reality was baptised accordingly. This is a pattern that is established within the New Testament and can be seen as early on as Acts 2, 37-41, whereby 
Peter exhorts the crowd who, having heard his sermon and feeling cut to the heart, they responded, brothers, what must we do? And how does Peter respond to that? Peter responds telling them to repent and be baptized. This was to be the first recorded baptism of Christ's followers in the New Testament and one that continues through the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, so Philip was the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Philippian jailer and his household and so forth. Baptism was to be an act that came after hearing and positively responding to the proclamation of Christ, assuming they had been regenerated so as to respond in such a fashion to begin with. Now, it was to be, baptism was to be an act, a, a, visual, a visible picture of one's salvation. In that having our sins perfectly washed away by God, having been converted and justified, we now enter the waters evidencing that our sins have been washed. However, more than simply that, we go down into the water and we come back up. And when we do that, we are also stating and showing that our old selves are now dead through Christ and recognizing that we are no longer to live for ourselves, but rather the Christ who lives in us. This is why when I was reading that passage out for us earlier in Romans 6, it starts out with saying in verses 2 to 4, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into what? Into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was died, uh, raised from the dead by the glory of the, uh, the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. So as we go into the waters, it, it signifies being united with Christ in death. And as we come up, it's a new, it reflects the newness of life we have in Christ. Consequently, this is why the subject of baptism was only to be for those who believed Due to the fact, the way, and due to the, uh, what the act of baptism represented, only those in whom the inward spiritual changes occurred could rightly evidence the act externally. So, for example, only those who believe, only those who have been regenerated, and they go through the act of baptism, only those are the individuals who who can undertake the act of baptism because they're showing outwardly the act which has taken place within their lives inwardly. This is what particular Baptists understood, not only as being testified in Scripture, because, again, what do people, uh, who are the subjects of baptism that we see in the New Testament? We see in Acts 2, what we see in the Ethiopian eunuch, what we see in the Philippian jailer, people who believe. They believe and they get baptized. So they believe, which is a testament to God's grace working within them, they respond going, I want to be baptized, and they go in to reflect, not only because they've called to the act of baptism, remember it's an ordinance, it's something which has been ordained for us to do by Christ, for those who are obedient to him, but again, it's to also reflect, as an outward activity, what God has done for us. So this is, not, uh, this is what the particular Baptists understood not only as being testified in Scripture, but was also understood within the early history of the church. This latter point having also been noted by two patristic professors, Hendrik Stander and Johannes Lowell, who summarize the early church's position on baptism when they state that, going, that, that it was going down into the baptismal water symbolized participation in the death 
of Christ on the cross and performed at the same time a washing away of sins so that the person emerging from the water is performatively cleansed and regenerated symbolically by sharing in the death and resurrection of Christ. So again, it's what baptism signifies. It's what baptism is pointing to. Not only is it pointing towards what Christ has done, it's pointing to our union now in Christ. And that is in both death and resurrection. This is why the mode, it's not just the subject of baptism which matters, but it's also the mode that matters also. As it was clear that for this imagery and symbolism, the fact that we go down into the waters in death and we come up in newness of life, that, that symbolism makes the word visible. Right? For this symbolism to, to actually make sense, right? for, this word, for the word to become visible, the mode of immersion absolutely matters. And this is a point that John Calvin uh, concedes before permitting the act of sprinkling anyway, which is the mode utilised by most um, pedo-baptists today, with the exception of the Orthodox. Now, before I go into the Orthodox, you, uh, have any of you been to a, a baptism, a pedo-baptist uh, baptism? I, I have, uh, not intentionally. I was called to preach at a Presbyterian one year, uh, one year and apparently it ended up being the same day as uh, an infant getting baptized. And I was like, okay, you get the Baptist to preach. <laughs> anyway, um, but, they, but, but effectively, depending on the denomination and depending on the facilities, they'll either have a little fountain which they take the baby to the fountain and basically wash its head or sprinkle some water over it, right? Or if they don't have a fount, they'll just get a cup of water and they'll sprinkle some water over the infant. The exception, of course, being the Orthodox, which is due to the word used for baptism, which is baptizo, which often means, uh, which baptizo, which most often meant immersion when it was actually used, particularly when it was used in the New Testament. This is uh, this is why when Orthodox baptize. They actually uh, baptise their infants in immersion. They'll dip the baby fully into the water three times, actually. You know, one for each, uh, one for each member of the Triune Godhead, for the Father, for the Son, for the Holy Spirit. And needless to say, there's a lot of upset babies thereafter. But that aside, in summarising his treatise on the nature of baptism in both Scripture and early Church, because again. Particular Baptists at that time, they were looking at both of these as guides. Benjamin Keach states it is clearly evinced that baptizo or baptism is not aspersion or sprinkling or pouring little water upon the face or any part of the body, but it is immersion or dipping the whole body and such. Also, that believers are only the true subjects and not infants of that holy sacrament. Indeed, for baptism to make the gospel visible, the right subject and the right mode must be utilised. So, believers and immersion. This was understood as being clearly derived from Scripture as also, and also the testimony of the early church, whereby most of the early documents testified to both this subject and this mode. The Didache, which is an early church document I referred to in previous weeks, is a document... Uh, speaks about believers willingly fasting in preparation to entering the waters, the baptismal waters. 
that means they were willfully fasting before proceeding. That, good luck telling an imp, a baby, sorry, you know, you have to willfully fast before you get baptized. To dedicate is predicated on it being believers who understand and are fasting accordingly. Likewise, the early, um, likewise, the early uh, church father Tertullian noted that baptismal washing is a sealing of faith, which, which faith is begun and commended by faith of repentance. We are not washed in order that we may see sinning, but we, because we have ceased, since in the heart we have been bathed already. So Tertullian is quite clear there. Regeneration precedes baptism. Evidencing his belief that baptism was only for those who had been regenerated prior to the act. Indeed, the overwhelming belief of the particular Baptist on this point was that baptism was an outward sign that reflected the reality of spiritual change. The subject was to be believers and a mode immersion. And the scriptural examples that, that were outlined in the New Testament was to be the prescribed pattern. Like most Protestants, however, Baptists did not believe that baptism was salvific but rather believed that such activity spiritually nourished the church as well as the individual believer. Now, to this end, it was held to be a sacrament. So you just saw Benjamin Keats use that word, this holy sacrament. So again, it was understood to be a sacrament, in addition to an ordinance by most early particular Baptists, in that baptism was an activity of grace that helps us grow spiritually by its application of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember that the tap of grace does not cease for the Christian at the point of conversion. But rather, as Bavink puts it, Christ acquired grace for us and continues to distribute grace uh, to or in us. Thus, in order for us to grow, God has created and ordained means that serve as mechanisms or delivery vehicles to help us grow further in our knowledge, our appreciation, and our love of Christ. Baptism is being one such means of grace that we grow in when not only for the individual Christian who goes through the act of baptism, right, and they're being spiritually nourished, and I'll explain into that further, but also the churches, we witness that act of baptism. Because, again, baptism isn't an individual act as much as we may want to point it, and, uh, point it as such. It's an individual act in the sense that an individual is going through the act but it's something that all parties of that baptism who are observing that baptism are also being spiritually nourished from that because they're remembering the goodness of God in their own lives. And that's fostering and cultivating that love actively. This was a point where many Baptists from the 19th century onwards started missing and indeed stripping the very real spiritual dimension to baptism and I would argue also to the Lord's Supper in the next one. Seeing as merely a symbol of no overall power. Again, we just look at it going as an act, but there's nothing spiritual on the spiritual dimension actually happening. When we do that, we actually uh, fail to understand that there's a real spiritual element to the act of baptism. They failed to recognize that outside of the subjective nature we experience in baptism, that there was a very real objective element that occurred during baptism. The 18th century particular Baptist theologian Anne Dutton uh, saw that baptism served as a specific threefold purpose, namely that one, it represented that one belonged to the Lord, two, it acted as a seal of assurance on the believer, and three, that it became a sign of initiation. 
that one being baptised was now a formal and visible part of the body, having undertaken the first mark of obedience to which Christ, uh, to, to which Christians were called. As a seal of assurance, God, through the Holy Spirit, spiritually applied the effects to the Christian, and this should generally be felt by the Christian subjectively. Now, N. Dutton continues and states this, all the, they say three persons, that's my own, I was transcribing this, so apologies. All the three persons in God do, as it were, solemnly engage to make good all the great things represented therein to a baptized believer. They hereby set their seal, as it were, there are men to all the salvation represented in baptism, and give the highest assurance thereof to baptized believers. This the Lord always gives to the persons of believers in in the due administration of the ordinance. And very frequently he gives the assurance to their spirits in their submission to it. As God the Father honoured his Son with testimonies of infinite favour upon his baptism, and as a eunuch after he uh, was baptised went on his way rejoicing, and as the jailer and his house after their baptism believing in God rejoiced, but when this is not experienced by believers upon their baptism, they are not to think it null and void, because, as was said, the Lord gives them a solemn assurance in the very ordinance of all the great things represented therein in his appointment and done by his authority. Effectively, what Ann Dutton's getting at there is baptism ought to nourish the soul as it is an objective act. Yes, it's subjective. We're, we're feeling it subjectively when we go through the act of baptism, but there's an objective element going on also, which receives God's amen to all and every believer who's baptised. Because when we, every believer comes into the kingdom of God and every, kingdom, every believer does as ought to please the Lord, then, of course, then, then God amens that. And so to all and every believer who's baptized, and this ought to create feelings of joys when we go through the act of baptism, of being incorporated into the people of God, also by becoming a beneficiary of Christ's redemptive work, because that's what baptism is a reminder of us, what, who we are now, spiritually. But as such, one, uh, one also goes through baptism to become initiated into the body of invisible saints, and a point we will touch on next, uh, next lecture. However, this is not to say that baptism was an efficacious sacrament in of itself, and that we need to be careful there, not to think, okay, maybe there's power in baptism, right? That baptism by itself has power. But no, it was not an efficacious sacrament in of itself. It was only able to do so in its relationship and proximity to Christ. Now, this was what was generally understood by the larger consensus of the Reformed tradition, whereupon the historian G.W. Bromley notes, it is not the external administration which affects anything in itself, but the meaningful sacrament of the saving action of Christ, as this is linked with the word and applied and used by the Holy Ghost. Now, baptism pointed to the nourishing work of Christ, and it is by undergoing the activity, this activity of baptism by faith, that the individual believer is further grown, as, as are the, the external observers who, being believers, are brought back to what Christ had done in their own individual lives, a point I just touched upon. The 20th century Baptist um, A.C. Underwood perhaps summarizes all of this well that we have covered to this point when he says, All who proceed to baptism do so in virtue of their faith, 
which has already welcomed the divine message of forgiveness and of new life in Christ. Apart from this faith, their baptism would affect nothing. They are not baptized in order to be regenerated, for their conversion was their regeneration. Now, at this point, touching upon the Baptist understanding would be helpful uh, to briefly summarize the Peter Baptist opinion here, although we have already touched upon this in recent weeks. But considering we are top- talking about the topic of baptism, then, it might, then we should cover or cross all our T's and dot all our I's in covering the different tr- traditions. Now, but Peter Baptists, whether Presbyterians, Anglicans, or Congregationalists, would generally agree with the baptism of believers upon their profession. You won't find any Presbyterian minister, Anglican minister, or Congregationalist who would say, I'm not going to baptise you because you're just someone who's come to the faith. Of course, if you're a believer and you've come to them and you haven't been baptised before, they'll willfully and willingly and eagerly baptise you. However, due to the seeing... Uh, children of believers as being under the faith of their parents, a point we have touched upon before, seeing this as a parallel to the treatment of circumcision in the Old Testament, they baptise these infants as belonging to the church, if not being actual Christians. And there's various documents and uh, points where that um, where they actually hold today. I, remember, I think Mark Jones made a point of that recently. I was sharing with Todd a few weeks back. Um, this argument concerning the silence of infant baptism in the New Testament is put down even to the fact that infants were baptised, but implicitly during times such as the Philippians jailer. Remember what happened. The Philippians jailer believed and he and his whole household were baptised. So that's one such argument. Or it's because the church was in its infancy and as such there were no children of believers at this point. This is why the missionary passages, such as the Great Commission, is only likely dealing with adults. This is the argument. As one Presbyterian commentator um, notes, as far as we can ascertain, this work was done with adults. This fact accounts for the emphasis on adult baptism. Indeed, there is no occasion for infant baptism until adults are converted and thus have a right to claim the covenant promise for their children. So again, his argument is, well, again... At this point in time, there are no children of believers per se. It's only the adults. And so as such, infants getting baptized is not a thing covered at this point in time. However, as infants were baptized, they were brought into a relationship with Christ that would progress in time either to a complete saving knowledge or apostasy. A former Anglican Bishop of Sydney, uh, Donald Robertson, noting, but in the case of an infant, Baptism, so infant baptism, awakens faith as its meaning is subsequently explained in catechism and hearing sermons. While in the case of an adult convert, faith is confirmed by baptism. In either case, baptism brings the person baptized into the sphere of God's covenanted mercies, marks him as a member of the visible church, and places upon the obligation to believe in God and serve him. So again, you can see where Donald Robinson's getting at, is that regardless of the entry point into the covenanted relationship, whether it's through infant baptism or an adult baptism, they all become members of the visible church. And they all have that obligation, regardless if they're an infant or not. However, the reality is that the Peter Baptist argument is one that ultimately emanates from silence and has no scriptural warrant relying far too much on making a transtestamental connection between circumcision and baptism. Uh, for the house, and you know, just a case in point, I haven't put it here, but 
if you look at one of the, the Galatian, the Galatian era, right? The Galatian era, hopefully most of us would remember, was the fact that Christians, in order to become true Christians, they had to become Jews first. And how did they become Jews through circumcision? So already the early Judaizers, who were claiming themselves to be Christian, didn't see an equivalency between baptism and circumcision. Had they done so, they wouldn't have been telling them to get circumcised in addition to baptism. They themselves understood that they were separate things altogether. There was no connection, at least in the early church, straight there. Anyway, that's just as an aside. But for the household argument, it is not at all clear or easy to establish the inclusion of infants within. As one could argue that, and this is, a, this is uh, something you may have heard from me privately before because it's an illustration I often use, uh, that one could argue that everybody in a household today voted in an election. But the reality would be only those in whom are able to meet the prerequisites of voting would have actually come past. So, for example, comes an election day, uh, the whole household who's over the age of 18 can vote, and you can actually say that whole household has voted. But that doesn't include necessarily every single person if in that household there are people under the age of 18. But you can still say the household. Likewise, similarly, you can also say when it comes to the baptising of infants and uh, effectively to the word oikos, the household, you can say that only those who meet the prerequisites of baptism, which is Faith, belief, are those who were baptized. It's a, a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of an argument from silence, or it is an argument from silence. Go, yeah, that included kids as well. It's, it, uh, yeah, it's using the analogy of faith, which is whereby you use clearer passages to interpret more difficult passages. One would recognize that when you look at the clear text on baptism, which is for those who believe then that, that clearly shows that only those who believed were baptised. You can't use an unclear passage to prove something to this point. Uh, perhaps a little facetiously, perhaps a little facetiously, Benjamin Keach points out the problematic nature of these arguments being without substance, particularly in light of the regulative principle of worship, when he compares the difference between infant baptism and bells, you know, ringing bells, ding-dong type things, whereby he states the following. Besides, are bells forbidden to be baptised? Have Christ said indeed, ye shall not baptise bells? Is it, that is it therefore lawful to baptize them? You will object, it may be that bells are not fit nor capable subjects of such an ordinance. But why are they not? Wherein are they incapable? Can you not sprinkle a little water upon a bell and use the words of an institution in as solemn a manner as you do when you sprinkle a child or baptize it as you say? Now again, Keats is being facetious, a little bit facetious here. But the point stands, there's no clear scriptural warrant for the baptism of infants. And using an argument to the point or the degree where you say that, oh, well, the Bible is not saying that we can't baptize infants. Well, the Bible also says you can't baptize bells, uh, doesn't say you can't baptize bells either. So as for the testimony of the early church, which particular Baptists appealed to in conjunction with Scripture, there was no real evidence to justify the pedo-Baptist position. Now, the pedo-Baptist patristic scholars, Stand and Lowe, who I referred to earlier, they're actually both Dutch Reformed. Uh, they're both with the Lord now. 
But they, they themselves note the real paucity of clear evidence of their position when they state that in the first four centuries of Christianity, the literature on baptism clearly shows how, in a majority of instances, it was persons of responsible age, generally adults and grown children, who were recipients of baptism. Emergency baptism and eventual linking baptism to circumcision, as well as the fact that baptism was believed to remove sin, occasioned the extension of baptism to small children and finally to infants. Now, this is a further collaborated by Everett Ferguson's Magisterial Treatment, and it's a huge book, it's a huge tome called um, Baptism in the Early Church. It's 953 pages, it's a big book. And, and, but Ferguson observes himself that there is a general agreement that there is no firm evidence of infant baptism before the latter part of the second century. This is, does not mean it did not occur, but it does mean that the supporters of the practice have a considerable chronological gap to account for. The most plausible explanation for the origin of infant baptism is found in the emergency baptism of sick children expected to die soon, so that they would be assured of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. There was a slow extension of this practice of, of baptizing babies as a precautionary measure. It was generally accepted, but questions continue to be raised about its propriety. Into the faith, uh, into the fifth, that should be fifth century, it became the uh, usual practice in the uh, fifth and sixth century. So you can see it was a later development in the history of the early church. Now, what Ferguson notes above concerning how infant baptism came to take a part within the church is one that has also been observed by other patristic scholars, so those scholars who focus and specialize in the early church and early church fathers. Particularly that due to the high infant mortality that occurred during these centuries, a type of clinical baptism took place whereby infants were baptized upon their deathbeds. This was combined with a gradual theological shift of baptism as actively infusing grace, eventually salvifically, through the notion of baptismal regeneration. That salvation and the baptismal uh, regeneration being that salvation was intimately linked to the act of baptism. Slowly, both of these concepts shaped the concept of infant baptism, particularly in the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches, a latter point which was generally rejected by most Protestant pedo-Baptist uh, Baptist churches, but not all. So again, not a lot of pedo-Baptist churches in the Protestant tradition would hold baptismal regeneration, likely so. They don't link baptism and, regener uh, and regeneration, thankfully. Indeed, despite the argument that has been made that Baptists make much of baptism, Baptists have historically made less of baptism than pedo-Baptist, despite our name. This is not to say that Baptists did not argue the importance of baptism, being that it was ordained by Christ and an instrument of grace, that is, a sacrament, but rather that imposed nothing needed as to the matters of salvation. Now, John Ryland, who was... Um, an 18th century Baptist minister who was a colleague of Andrew Fuller states uh, this, I know of no Baptist who ever said such strong things of, of the necessity, much less the efficacy of baptism, as many pedo-Baptists have done. And let it be remembered that it is, only, uh, it is our, our very principle that a man must be first in a state of salvation before he has a right to baptism. Yet despite the mode, uh, the difference of mode, and some of the subjects of baptism, that is infants, again, uh, like I said, Peter Baptist churches 
do baptize adults, believing adults as well, and those are valid baptisms potentially, depending on the mode. We do uh, here recognize, a particular Baptist in the 17th century, as we do here today, recognize that they were brethren in uh, the gospel. Um, that, oh, sorry, um, this is infants. This is not to deny that Peter Baptist churches are true churches. Particular Baptists in the 17th century, as we do here today, recognize that they were true brethren in the gospel and were still attempting to take serious the word of God and its application. It's just that it was a defective application. Infant baptism is a defective application. They're taking God's word seriously, and so we see that, that and we recognize that they're true brethren, but their application of the act of baptism in accordance with Scripture and also supported by early church history is ultimately defective. This is why they, that while we do not recognize those who were baptized as infants as having a valid baptism, so often if someone was approached to church and, uh, and become a member and wanting church membership and go, I was baptized as a baby, we, we would say, rightly so, you would need to actually be baptized. That beforehand wasn't baptism in accordance to scripture. But whilst we do not recognize uh, infants, uh, individuals who were baptized as infants as having a ba- uh, valid baptism, they were still recognized and we still recognize them as fellow believers and heirs of eternal life. But due to the commitment of the clearness of Scripture, defective applications could themselves not be recognized. Benjamin Keach, when he was asked um, and, and answering an argument as to whether he saw congregationalists as being true churches, despite their pedo-baptism, he argued that they're affirm- in the affirmative, saying, I doubt not, but that they are true churches as well as we they being godly Christians, though I do believe they may be less complete churches than those who are uh, baptized upon the profession of faith, or not so orderly in their constitution. See, baptism for us tonight, uh, tonight and I will leave this as the concluding remarks, baptism was an ordinance that was intended to be that which pointed to Christ. It's not meant to point to me. It's not meant to point to the person getting baptized. It's meant to point to to Christ. It was an outward activity that, as Ernest Kevin states, preaches to the eye. I like that. Baptism and the Lord's Supper as well are meant to preach to the eye. Yet as important as it was, and one needed to take care, as the Puritan Walter Marshall notes when he states, beware of making an idol of baptism and putting it in the place of Christ. So again, baptism is significantly important because scripture is important. The word of God is supreme. And whilst we, we recognize our pedo-baptist brethren hold to a defective application, in no way uh, prohibits or um, help, makes us look at their church as not being a true church in of itself. Uh, we just recognize that their application of God's word is defective. So hopefully that was helpful on baptism. And next week I'll be going into, or next uh, next lecture, I'll be going into both the Lord's Supper and also what is called the proniquity of the church. Uh, but with that said, I will um, close in prayer now. Let's pray. Dear Blessed Father, we thank you so much for the fact that we can delve into your word and learn more about not only yourself and how you have revealed yourself in your word, but how you, re- you have revealed your church, how you have revealed your church is to be ordered, to be governed, 
how the activity and the administration of the ordinances should take place. Father, as we wrestle with, as we wrestle with your word, help us not to be those who just simply walk away going, well, most of this doesn't matter anyway, only, only the fundamentals. Father, help us to recognize while the fundamentals are absolutely true and, and need to be held, that all of God's word is useful for the believer and that we should not be taking any of your word lightly. So help us wrestle to positions, recognizing that all of your word speaks to us and is relevant to us, so that we may walk away going, whilst I may hold to, uh, whilst I may hold to this position, I may not be dogmatic about it, is better than not holding a position at all. In your son's most blessed name, amen.